Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. This is our time where we open God's Word, continue in our worship as we hear what He would have for us to look at this morning. We have been studying through 2 Peter. If you would turn your Bibles to 2 Peter, to the second chapter of 2 Peter, you guessed it, we're still not through with 2 Peter chapter 2 yet, but we've been going verse by verse, and today we will be finishing up that chapter This is a chapter that has dealt with the subject of false teachers. You know that. You've been hearing that week after week. 2 Peter chapter 2. The section we began last time, I will finish this morning, uh, began in verse 17. In verses 10 through 16, however, he was talking about the character of false teachers. And then he comes to... Verses 17 through 19, he talks about their teaching. And in verses 20 through 22, he will talk about their destiny of false teachers. Let me just read to you these verses. 2 Peter 2, I'll begin in verse 17 and through 19 first and read those. These are springs, talking about these false teachers. These are springs without water. They promise to give water, but they don't give water. That's the point. They're empty. And mist driven by a storm, like a storm cloud, looks like it's going to rain, but doesn't deliver. That's the false teachers describing the kind of teaching they have. For whom the black darkness has been reserved. They give the impression of offering something, and they offer nothing. They're empty. They leave their hearers still thirsting, still hungry. Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly lust. They're very, they're very popular. They use swelling words, flowery words, words that make them sound like they're so deep and they're not. Words that seek to impress. By sensuality, they appeal to the base nature of people, greed, sexuality, selfishness, those things. Seek to entice They go after people who are barely escaping from the ones who live in error, talking about people who are going through problems, people who are seeking to maybe, uh, who have just come to Christ, maybe the young believers, maybe they're struggling people who are struggling with sin, struggling with uh, a difficult marriage, struggling with uh, some other kinds of problems, and they are the ones that these false teachers latch onto those people. Verse 19, promising them freedom. I can give you the message on how to get free from this. I can give you the steps on how to get free from this. But they themselves, he says, are slaves of corruption. They themselves are enslaved to corruption. They can't help anybody. That's the point he made in those verses regarding their teaching. I can set you free. Peter says they can't set anybody free because they are enslaved. And then we come to verses 20 through 22, and he talks about their spiritual status here. Very, very important sermon this morning. I'm just going to tell you that. It's going to be a tough one. It's going to be a tough one. But it's a necessary one. It's a very important sermon to make and to teach. Notice he says in verse 20, For if... 
after they, speaking of the false teachers, have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Let it sink in for a moment. Look at that verse again I just read. Verse 21, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Verse 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. In thinking about these verses, I want to start this morning by talking about a New Testament individual. About 50 miles south of Jerusalem is a town called, or was a town called Kerioth. One day there would be a child born in that town who history would say would become the most wretched person that ever lived in biblical history. That man's name was Judas Iscariot. Of, he was, of, the 12, of 11 other men he was involved with, he, had, he was very privileged. In Matthew 13, Jesus said this to Judas and to those 11, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Judas had the privilege of walking closely with Jesus listening to Jesus, living with Jesus for three years. But Judas tossed it all aside. He became what is known as an apostate. Someone who hangs around the right crowd, hears the truth, and yet walks away because they were never genuine in the first place. They know the truth. They'll affirm the truth. But they don't really know the truth. They're not genuine. Judas is a common name back then, not now. You might name your dog Judas, but you don't name your child Judas. Maybe Judah, because it does come from Judah, and that's okay. But Judas, there was Judas Thaddeus and Judas Iscariot. It means um, Yahweh leads which was a contradiction because he was led by Satan. Satan entered the heart of Judas. It also could mean one who's the object of praise, but that wasn't Judas either. He was a man from Kerioth, so he's identified by his geographical location, Judas, the man from Kerioth. He was the only Judean Jew among the twelve. The other 11 were Galilean Jews. He was a southern Jew. The Jews in the south tended to see themselves better than the Jews in the north. So that's just a cultural thing. I'm not saying that what played into all of this, but that was just the difference between Judas geographically and the other 11. He was obviously attracted to Christ in some way, and he hung in there with Christ. Remember in John chapter 6, when everybody left, he stayed with the other 11. He stayed. He didn't leave. He stayed there. 
He remained, but he did not remain on a spiritual level, and this is important. On a spiritual level, he wasn't there, but he was there physically. And he was there because we learn and draw from other passages based on what he thought he could get from Jesus, what I can get from him. What prestige I can get by being on this inner circle. What prestige I can get when he sets up this kingdom he talks about. The popularity of that, of just being on the inside. He was not a sinister looking guy like art seems to portray him. You look at some art, art portrayals of him. He just, he didn't look any different. When Jesus said that one of you is going to betray me, nobody said, oh yeah, it's Judas. Nobody said that. That's how well he blended in. That's how well he was able to cover up what was on the inside. Outwardly, he looked fine. The other disciples all thought it was them. They didn't think it was him. He had perfected hypocrisy. He had the same potential as everybody else, all the other 11 did. He had the same raw material, but he had a heart that was not willing. The same sun as the One writer says, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. While the others were being melted and molded and shaped, Jesus was not, excuse me, Judas was not. And Jesus had taught a lot of things. If you look at some of the teachings through the lens of what I'm about to say, you can see other places where there was warnings given about the true and the false. It's those that continue in my word. It's those that uh, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord belongs to me. So he taught things like that. Wheat and tares. There were all kinds of warnings to Judas along the way. He was hearing Jesus say these things. Let me show you another one. Go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Hold your hand there in 2 Peter and go to Matthew 13. This is the parable of of the sower and the seed. And you're very familiar with this. Let me just summarize a couple things before I have you look at a specific verse. But Matthew chapter 13, the sower goes out to throw seed on the soil. And this is not an agricultural lesson. This is a parable. This is Jesus speaking, uh, giving a spiritual truth. The sower is the one who spreads the gospel, the seed, and he throws it on different kinds of soil conditions. That's what this parable is about. There's a hard soil, there's a rocky soil, there's a thorny soil, and then there's a good soil. That's the parable. The heart condition is what matters. The word is thrown out there like it's being thrown out this morning. And proclaim this morning, it's landing on different heart conditions, different soils. And you see in verse 19, when Jesus is giving an explanation of this, he's talking about the hard soil first. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart, this one of whom the seed was sown beside the road. That's the hard soil. But the one I want to draw your attention to is the next one. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and, listen, immediately receives it with joy. 
yet has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And then he goes on and talks about the, the uh, thorny soil, and he talks about the good soil, the soil that produces fruit, the true soil, the soil that responds truthfully. And it responds and is truly a believer. This soil, though, let me draw your attention to it just for a moment. He's talking about rocky soil. He's talking about a rock bed that is beneath the soil. Something you cannot see, this rock bed. The soil on top of the rock bed, the soil up here, it, it's, you can see that. It's got a little bit of depth to it. But because of that rock bed, when it, the, the, the seed hits, it sprouts but that's, that root cannot go very far at all because of the rock bed. There's this hardness. There's this hardness inside. Whatever the motivation to receive the seed was, it's received immediately with joy. And everybody standing around looks at them and says, wow, he's had some kind of conversion happen there. Something's taken place. You see that in that verse. Immediately receives it with joy. But it's only temporary. It looks like, looks like he became a Christian. There's an emotional response. Professes to be a believer. I'm a believer. But in time, persecution, but in time when the cost of what it means to be a Christian becomes more of a reality... He's not willing to pay that cost. He falls away. To which John would say in 1 John chapter 2, those who went out from us were never of us. The reason they left was because they did not truly know Christ. They were not of Christ. They did not truly know him. So they fell away. Jesus is not talking about somebody losing their salvation. Understand this. Jesus is not talking about somebody who's born again and then he loses that salvation. That is not what's being taught here. The New Testament is very clear. If you belong to Christ, if you are truly one of his, John 10, if you are one of his sheep, he holds you in his hand and he will never let go. Nothing can take you away from Christ. That's eternal security. It's not something you try to hold on. It's him holding on to you. True believers are held on to. You can't get away from Jesus. Nobody can take you away from Jesus if you belong to him. This is not talking about losing a salvation. This is talking about never having it. Never taking root underneath the hard heart of stone. Seed cannot go deep. The heart is not truly receptive. That's what we're talking about in Matthew 13. Receiving it, the receptive heart. This heart, this hard heart, this rocky heart is not receptive. Oh, to a point, yes. But not not for the long haul, not to continue, just a temporary thing. May have given some kind of mental assent, may have said, 
I believe, may have said, yes, I want that. Yes, that's for me. He may have said all of those things outwardly. But it never came to faith for salvation. See, some of these people really do pose a threat to us, by the way. You meet people like this. I meet people like this. They'll say to you and to me, Oh, I used to believe what you believe. Oh, I used to think what you think. I used to go to a conservative evangelical church. I used to be involved in a Sunday school class. Oh, I used to even teach a Sunday school class. But I don't believe that stuff anymore. Let me show you now what I believe. They say, I, 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 I want to teach you a better way about things. Those are the kinds of people that Peter is talking about. Apostates. Apostates. Talking about people who had full knowledge, people that had full light, people that even made a profession, people that even said they believed and showed maybe some early enthusiasm about it, but walked away, walked away from it. Judas was an apostate. I would not say that Judas was a false teacher. All apostates are not false teachers. But Peter does seem to bring the two together in 2 Peter chapter 2. Apostate false teachers. It's not just Judas. This has been going on in the church since the beginning. Jesus warned about it. You'll have tares among the wheat. Those who look like wheat and they're not. This is not new. This is nothing new. When he started hearing, when Judas started hearing Jesus talking about a kingdom that wasn't going to happen now, but at a second coming, he started to get disillusioned, possibly. When he started hearing Jesus talk about going to a cross, he started having thoughts that this guy is not what I was hoping he would be. I followed him for these reasons, and he's not living up to my expectation. Talking about dying on a cross, what is that all about? He had it, and he was done, and he sold Jesus for whatever he could get. Judas, Judas was an apostate. He was an apostate. And this story has been repeated many, many times. And maybe it's in this room this morning as well. Maybe. Maybe even in some of your lives. You are not genuine, and you know it. And you know it. Maybe you're listening to me this morning online. Maybe you are not genuine and you know you're not genuine. No one else knows it because you, like Judas, just blend in well with the crowd. And you just go along with the flow and you never really embrace Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and you don't have a relationship with Him. Maybe that is you. And you can hide in a church, and the bigger our church gets with more people coming through our doors, it's easier to hide in a crowd. It's very easy to hide in a crowd. I may appeal to you is don't repeat the story of Judas. Don't repeat the story of these apostate false teachers in 2 Peter. Because it can be repeated. It can be repeated. 
Well, these, in chapter 2, back to chapter 2, verse 20 of 2 Peter, these false teachers are, according to these verses, apostates. Apostates. That is the reason they can come in among you. Verse 1 of chapter 2. They come in among you because they say they are of you and they're really not. That is the reason they can be so deceptive because they say they are. They use the right language. They say the right things. And they talk the right words. Let me just break this down for you in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Notice they, speaking of false teachers. Notice the next phrase, having escaped the defilements of the world. Understand this. The false teachers at one time were pursuing religion. They were trying to pull themselves out of the defilements of the world. They were trying to pull themselves out of the the sewer of the world. How do I get out of this stuff? This is a mess. I'm looking for something to get me out of the mess. And many of them want to escape. And many of them want to uh, escape those influences and they turn to religion. Liberal seminaries have a lot of these students who go there because they want to elevate themselves to some religious level. They study theology to escape the pollution of the world. Even unbelievers don't like the way the world is going. And they turn to religion, maybe. Some turn to Christianity. Some turn to Muhammad. Some turn to other world religions. But they look to religion as that thing that will help them escape. That is common. And many of them become ministers and priests and counselors and evangelists and teachers. Notice what it says in that verse as well. They do this by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not talking about saving knowledge here. It's not a complete knowledge. In in other words, they're turning to something um, to escape. They're turning to even the teachings of Christ. Yesterday, I was reading uh, on the religion section of the newspaper online. It talked about a Christian science lecturer, maybe what they call him, uh, in town to talk about how to change your life. And he's going to refer to you to the ethics of Jesus. That's common, folks. Cults do this. They like the ethics and the teachings of Jesus. They just don't like the demands of Jesus. They just don't like the cost to follow Jesus. They just don't like the breaking up of their hard hearts to bow their knee to submission to Jesus as their Lord. They reject the authority that Christ would have over their heart. But they're attracted to the ethics, the Sermon on the Mount. They all like that kind of stuff. They want to escape the defilements of the world. And they honestly want to help other people escape the defilements of the world. And they look to Jesus. They look to the knowledge of Jesus, uh, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not in a, not in a uh, salvation way, but in a moral way. Folks, they want reformation without regeneration. Understand that. They want to be reformed, but they don't want to be regenerated. Changed from within. Big difference. 
You can have moral transformation. You can try to be a better person. You can have your list of things you want to improve on this year. You can have your uh, books on how to do this and how to do that better. But moral transformation, moral, moral reform is not transformation, it's not regeneration. That's just you trying to make you a better person. That's just Joel Osteen's philosophy. Be happy and don't ever deal with the heart and get down and repent of things in your heart and go where the real issues of life are. Keep talking on the surface, swelling words. As we saw last week, but nothing that penetrates deep to where I really live. And what really drives me in my humanity and my sinfulness. They deny the lordship of Christ in their lives. That's exactly what Judas did. That's the layer of the rock. I don't want him to reign over me. I just want to be in his kingdom. I just want to go to heaven. I just want to have a better marriage. I just want to make more money. I just want to, I just want to, I just want to. It's all about you. Nothing about his lordship over you. If you have an NIV, that's a very unfortunate translation in the NIV. NIV says it like this. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you hear what I just said? If you have an NIV, that gives the impression that they know Jesus Christ. And let me be technical here. There is, there is no participle in this verse. Knowing is not correct. The ESV, New American Standard, say it correctly. It's people who know of or know about Jesus Christ. It's not people who know Christ. If you have an NIV, make a note of that in there. I don't like to tell people to change the wording in your Bibles, but change the wording in that. That's just a, you know what that is? The NIV, I'm not trying to make, make little of your Bible, but that is not a word-for-word translation of the Scriptures. That is a, it's a dynamic translation. It's basically people translating it, what they think it says. But the correct wording there needs to be clear because that is saying something totally different than what this verse says. It's a huge difference. There's no participle. It's a noun. It's knowledge. Because you can know about Christ, but not knowing Him. You don't know Him. That's a big difference. Matthew 7 says that, right? On that last day on judgment, when people are going to come to Him, and he's gonna, they're going to say, uh, Lord, Lord, we did this. We did this ministry. We did that ministry. We did all these ministries. We did all these things. Judas could say this. Judas could say this. We did all of these things. And he will say, I never knew you. Yeah, I never knew you. So these people know about Jesus. They know who he is. They want to escape the defilements of the world. And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. They want Christ, as we've seen in this chapter. They want Christ plus their lustful passions. They want Christ plus their greed. That's what we've seen in their character throughout this chapter. They want places where they can let their eyes of adultery just 
be a predator to people. Then Peter gives this warning. They are again entangled in them. So they came to, they came to Christianity uh, and they get entangled again and to, get us, to make escape. Well, they get entangled in them and this time they're overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. They get tangled again in the muck and this time overcome by it, dominated by it. They dive deeper into it. When you, when you are trying to break a bad habit and you're doing your own strength, you know, you're like, I guess I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat Oreos. I'm not going to eat any Oreos. I'm really going to fight this Oreo problem I have. I'm really going to fight and not gonna eat Oreos. I mean, I just really focused on not eating Oreos. I'm really, you know, it's just like that. Oh, one's not going to hurt. Well, one, the whole bag is gone, right? That's what this reminds me of. You, you in your own power have tried to suppress your flesh. You in your own power have tried to reform yourself. You have no Holy Spirit. You have no grace operating in your life. You have no power. You have nothing. You're trying to improve yourself by yourself. Flesh cannot change flesh. And what happens when you have that weak moment? You just indulge all, you know, that's how the flesh works. You've suppressed it by yourself. And that's what happens. Now they're dominated by the very things they were once seeking to escape. They're now entangled in in them and dominated by them. So it's, the warning is just incredible there. He says it's, once again, reformation is not the same as regeneration. They're not regenerated. They've rejected Christianity. and, And maybe people can't see it on the outside, but it's true on the inside. Because it's what drives them. The last state has become worse than the first for them. Why is that true? Why would you say that, Peter? Why would you say the last state has become worse for them than the first? And his point is, it's worse for someone who's been exposed to the truth not to embrace it than it is for someone who's never heard it or been exposed to it. If you are, folks, if you have heard it, you are responsible for it. If you have not heard it, you're still going to be responsible, but the judgment's going to be a lot less. Let me show you why I say that. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. This is Jesus speaking. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gives this strong condemnation for the pride of three particular cities. And the implication of what I'm trying to say here, the implication is that these three cities had a lot of light. These three cities had a lot of exposure and a lot of opportunity that someone can have to turn to Christ. They had lots of it. Their punishment is going to be greater because they've rejected Christ than for someone who had less light. That's the point of of this section of Matthew chapter 11. Let me read this. Let me show you this. Because Jesus is going to say this later. Who much is given, much is required. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. It's talking about three cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida first. Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. That's the crux of the matter right there. They did not repent. This is where, and it's true, most of his miracles did occur in these cities. Um, 
they would not repent. They thought they were fine. They did not think they needed Christ. They were prideful. They were self-righteous. And then he records their condemnation. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, those Gentile, you know, those Gentile places that you look down on, if they had seen these miracles, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In his omniscience, he knows that about those places, those Phoenician cities. But these people, he said they would have repented. You're going to be accountable because of the light you received and you did not repent. Nevertheless, I say to you, verse 22, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. See, this indicates levels of judgment, levels of hell will not be the same for everybody. There will be degrees. Tyre and Sidon will not be judged the same way as Chorazin and Bethsaida. They did not have as much light. They, were not, they did not have as much exposure to the truth as those two cities. God knows how to mete out his judgment. God knows how to hand out his judgment. The more revelation, the more truth someone has. Excuse me, the more, the more truth that someone has, the greater is their responsibility. Look what he says about Capernaum, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, oh, we've heard about Sodom. If, we had, if, if the miracles that I have done around you had occurred in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. It would never have been destroyed. See, Capernaum even gets a greater indictment here because you know why? This was the headquarters of Jesus. Yes, he was from Nazareth, but he adopted Capernaum as his ministry headquarters. And he did a huge number of miracles, Matthew 8 and 9, in Capernaum. You have the raising of Jairus' daughter, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healed demoniac, Peter's mother-in-law, two blind men, a satyrian servant, the dumb demoniac, the woman with the hemorrhage, the paralytic who was lowered down through the roof. Listen, all kinds of miracles, all kinds of light, all kinds of information, and they rejected. And he's saying, your judgment will be worse, is worse than what was done to Sodom. You were a privileged city. Nevertheless, I say to you, verse 24, you'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment. In, in view of all the gross immorality of Sodom, the homosexuality, all the things that was going on in Sodom, he says, your judgment is going to be worse. And those words ought to make you shudder. It ought to make, it ought to make anybody that's sitting in church week after week hearing the truth, more light, more light, more light, and continually rejects it, it ought to make you shudder. It ought to scare you to death. You're just taking in more and more light and continually rejecting it. That is a harsher judgment on someone who has never heard. Scary thought. Scary thought if you're raised in a Christian home and you reject it. Exposed to all that opportunity, exposed to all that light, all that information and to turn from the truth. And so, you see what Peter means by that. More tolerable for the one who never heard than the one who hears and rejects it. 
Go to verse 21. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21. Repeat what I just said. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Just different ways of saying the way of righteousness, the holy commandment, just different ways of saying the gospel, just the ways of saying how to be right with God, just different ways on saying how to have a relationship with God, way of righteousness, turn away from the holy commandment. And that's the judgment they will face. Salvation is found only in Christ. The way of righteousness. Turn to Hebrews. I hate to have you keep turning, but let's look at Hebrews 6 real quick. You're familiar with that passage. See if I can bring this to a close here quickly. Hebrews chapter 6. You've seen this passage caused a lot of controversy for people. Hebrews chapter 6. This, this passage is saying basically the same thing, okay? Basically the same thing. Verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves, excuse me, crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. These are people, just like we see in the previous section in Second Peter, try to, by their own bootstraps, to pick them up and pull themselves out of the muck, out of the, out of the bad influences of the world, out of all of that, and they have been enlightened. Notice this is the word enlightened. And they have tasted. Those two words are not salvation words. They've just been enlightened. They've been shown the truth. They've tasted. They haven't drank it. They've just tasted. You, wanna, you want the living water, Jesus says to the woman at the well, then Drink. You, you want to be committed to me, then eat. These are enlightened and tasted. They've tasted the power of the Holy Spirit, the good words of God, the miraculous power of Christ, powers of the age to come. They have been around it. They have exposed themselves to it. It doesn't mean they've embraced it. That's the big difference here. They haven't embraced it. They've tasted all and seen it all and understood it all and they still reject it. They fall away. They fall back. And it's impossible to renew them again to that initial state, to renew them again to repentance. They've chosen to stand with Christ's crucifiers rather than to stand with Christ. When they want to immunize a disease, they give you a little bit of the disease, right? That's called a vaccination. And some people have enough Christianity in them to keep them away from the truth. They've so hardened their hearts to the message. They so hardened their hearts to the truth that it's never a message that just resonates in their heart to embrace it and to repent. And there may be a judgment involved in this where God just comes to a point where you want to go your own way and he says, I'm going to let you go your own way. That could certainly be 
part of that as well. But notice verse 7 of Hebrews 6. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. And so this just shows you there's the two different kinds of soils here. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. This shows me that our, that interpretation is correct. Because the word that falls on good soil receives a blessing from God. It's useful. Word that falls on thorns and thistles is worthless and cursed. All those who hear the word are like the earth. The rain falls. The gospel message comes. The seed is planted. It brings forth vegetation. That's not true with the apostate. It doesn't bring forth that. Go to verse 22 of 2 Peter, and we'll close with this this morning. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. 2 Peter 2, 22. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Kind of a repulsive illustration here, but talking about people who spurn the truth of Christ go back to their old ways. It's like, it's like you, can, you can dress your dog up any way you want to dress him up, but he's still a dog. He has a dog nature. You can't take the nature away from him no matter what you make him look like on the outside. You can dress him up all night, neat and nice, and he's going to go outside and eat his vomit or something worse because that's his nature. The same with a pig. You can do whatever and say, make a pet out of a pig if you want. The point is, he's still a pig. He has a pig's nature. He will do that. These men have never had their nature changed. They just go back to where they are most comfortable. The Jews hated dogs and they hated pigs. Um, you see the worst illustrations about them. Dogs were dirty and dogs were vicious and dogs were not your household pet. And pigs were pork, and they didn't like pork. So Jesus says, don't, Matthew 6, 7, 6, this may be where Peter's borrowing some of this from, Matthew 7, 6, don't give what is holy to dogs, and don't cast pearl before swine. So what's my point this morning? Well, Reformation does not happen without regeneration. It's possible to sit in Grace Church and try to reform yourself and try to, try to be like the rest of the crowd and get along with the rest of the crowd and enjoy the crowd and be exposed to all the things that we say and do here. And you can, uh, I had a, knew a guy one time, came for a long time, wasn't a believer, and I talked to him about it, and he said, well, I just like, the, I just like Bible teaching. I just like to hear the Bible taught. I said, man, that's, that's not the message. You don't want to be sitting there week after week rejecting and rejecting and rejecting for Bible teaching. I said, the message is about Christ. And no matter what your resolutions, you will never change without Christ. You must become a new creation in Christ, and that only happens when you embrace Christ. And if you're here this morning, I just want to just say to you that, one, don't, fall into the trap of the apostate. Don't fall into the path of the apostate. And secondly, if you're not a Christian, I would say to you, cry out to Christ to save you. Cry out to him to redeem you, to, to know that you know that you know. 
Look, you can know you're a Christian. You know, here's how you know you're a Christian. One, you love God. Two, you love God's people. Three, you love God's law. Fourth, you see your life progressing in those virtues we saw in 2 Peter chapter 1, progressing in those virtues of love and joy. You see your life changing. That's how you know you're a Christian. You see the progression, and this comes from a heart, a heart that loves God. If you don't see those things, then you need to cry out to God to put them there. Please, God, put those in my heart that I will know that I know that I know you. It's very important, my friends. This is just way too important for me to just skip over and just assume everybody that comes through our doors is a Christian, a believer. We live in a society where it's easy to be a Christian, at least it used to be. And many of you, like me, been baptized several times, gone to several churches, and it took me a long time to see the real true picture that I had to be changed from within. It wasn't about my outward actions. It was what was going on inside of me and driving me and motivating me to love Christ. I'll take a few moments here and let's just have some silence. Let me take some time to pray in your own heart. If this is a need in your heart, I just ask you now to cry out to God in your own privacy and heart. God, help me. God, open my eyes. God, save me. God, whatever you need to ask God to do, I pray you would do that. Let's take a few moments of silence. If that is something you have done this morning or if that's something you want to know more about, I will gladly talk to any of you about that. Rod at gcot.org or meet me after the service or meet uh, Doug or someone else that you know in this church that could help you understand what I'm saying this morning. If there's confusion about it or questions about it, we certainly want to be here to help you in that. If you know in your heart that you have done that this morning maybe uh, and you are confident of where you stand before God and you want to tell somebody, find someone to tell that to. My friends, this is too important. This is not something that we, we just take lightly. This is why we exist as a church to proclaim this gospel message. This is why we exist as a body of believers to put Christ on display because he's all that matters. In the end, when you're on your deathbed, it will not matter how much money you made or what you accomplished in this life, but it'll be how you stand with God through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.